0: Dropbox is a consumer storage product with petabytes of data. Dropbox was originally started on the cloud, backed by S3. Once there was a high enough volume of data, Dropbox created its own data centers, designing hardware for the express purpose of storing user files. Over the last 13 years, Dropbox's infrastructure has developed hardware, software, networking, data center infrastructure, and operational procedures that make the cloud storage product best in class. Andrew Fong has been an engineer at Dropbox for eight years. He joins the show to talk about how the Dropbox engineering organization has changed over that period of time and what he is doing at the company today. If you enjoy this show and find it useful, you can help us out by subscribing. You can become a paid subscriber at softwaredaily.com slash subscribe, and it's $10 a month or $100 a year, and you get access to all of our old episodes without ads. That's over 1,300 episodes, and there's lots of content in there on anything that you're learning right now. Also, at softwaredaily.com, you can find question and answer and all kinds of other content relating to this episode, which can help you augment the knowledge that you're going to learn from today's show. Andrew Fong, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to meet you, Jeffrey. You joined Dropbox in 2012. Are there any canonical engineering problems, the themes that you are working on in 2012 that just still keep cropping up today?
1: I would say the things that we still continuously work on, storage is a big aspect. I wouldn't say it's a problem. I think it's a core competency that we think about as a company. And so we continually invest in storage. Ever since I started, that's been a big focus area other areas tend to be we're always focused on reliability. I would say a problem that every company faces as you grow in size, there's always the next iteration of what does reliability look like. Those are probably the two big ones that stick out to me just in the roles I've played at Dropbox. And the other one is probably developer efficiency. Just how do you bring on onboard developers? How do you get them to be maximally effective in the shortest period of time?
0: How has storage been reinvented over time at Dropbox? so if i
1: think back to when i first joined dropbox we were doing primarily storage on s3 we separate our storage into two different pieces one is metadata which is the attributes about files think about this as the access times the file sizes etc the file names and then the contents of the files or blocks and on the database side that's where metadata is stored that's traditionally been in dropbox and then we had had the block storage side in s3 and what we had done over the last, you know, we'd done a migration from S3 onto our own in-house storage called Magic Pocket. And there's a lot of blog posts about this that we've done over the years, but we had to build a storage system from scratch. And so we built a block storage system and we've continuously reinvented that. You know, last year, last 18 months, we've launched things like SMR, first to market with SMR, and we built sort of a fully integrated storage stack over the last seven and a half years.
0: And the other recurring theme was reliability, you said?
1: Yeah, reliability is another big portion, you know, as you start, you know, I joined when there's probably about 130 people in the company, the company is much larger now, engineering team is much larger, as you build more and more systems, and they have these complex interdependencies, you continually have to reinvent how you're thinking about reliability and the parts of reliability that matter for the customer, the parts of reliability that matter for internal systems as well.
0: What was the earliest outage that you remember that maybe changed your perspective on that reliability?
1: We had an outage, I think there's a blog post about this as well, probably 2013, 2012. It was probably about 18 months after I joined. It's a fairly large outage. And our perspective... We were always focused on reliability and durability, but our perspective just really shifted into that it has to be part of the culture of engineering from end to end. It can't be something that you think about after you've launched a product. And this is something that, you know, I've been at a fair number of large companies and it's something that I think on every system that you launch, you sort of go through this journey. And we went through it, we had a, we had a fairly large outage and we ended up taking a step back and saying okay we have to everything into even headcount planning when I think about headcount planning I think about the number of people dedicated to reliability or durability of systems making sure that the metrics are weaved entirely end-to-end through from we think about a system to when it's launched and then sort of the follow-up after system is out there in production as well
0: you were part of the famous migration off of the cloud what was your role in that project
1: At that point at Dropbox, I was one of the SRE or the SRE managers or Site Reliability Manager. I was managing the teams that were building a lot of the tools to stand up our own data centers. So you can think of this as machine management, the teams that were handling the black box monitoring. So when we built Magic Pocket, we had a, call it a red team and a blue team. And you can say the software engineering team was the blue team and they were building a system which was gonna store this data. And then we had a red team, which was effectively the SREs that knew how the architecture was set up, but they built these validation systems that were able to end-to-end validate for data loss without having to, not introspecting the code itself, but by looking at it from a black box perspective. So for every every place we stored a block, we wanted to validate that that block was stored and the, and the history of the block was preserved. And so they, I own the teams that were building those black box monitoring systems effectively.
0: And what goes into a black box monitoring design?
1: So you can think of it as almost from the user's perspective, if the block is not there, then something's wrong. And so if you start from that premise that if I want to go find this block in the system, I should be able to find it at any point in time, they would test for that purely using the APIs that are available within the system, not looking at the internals of the system design. So if there's a GET, they would issue a GET and see if, this, see if the block was returned at the top layer, and then so forth on every layer of the stack. So if there's a Magic Pocket front end, they would validate the Magic Pocket front end the block was available. And then the next layer down, they would look at what we call an OSD, an online storage device, whether the OSD actually had the block available. And then we look at the database to verify that the hash was there. And so that gave us a way of validating that every single system System was going to give the output that we were expecting all the way up and down the stack. And we would never use an internal API call. We'd only use the external because that would be what the user's perception of what was happening was going to be. So you can think of it as a black box. We knew nothing about the system aside from you can issue these API calls and you validate whether or not it's working or not.
0: Hmm. And so all those different layers that happen through a read to the storage system Can you go through those a little more slowly? So just from the outside looking in, a user making a read to Dropbox, they're looking for, I'm not exactly sure what would be on a single block, but they're looking for, you know, a file, for example. They're trying to read a file. What are those different layers of the stack?
1: This is going to be uh, testing my memory now on on this. I'll try to do this from a pretty high-level architecture perspective because there's there's a lot of different pieces to this. If I back up all the way to how Dropbox works, when we have a file, that file is split into four megabyte blocks. Those blocks are stored in our block storage system. So for if you have a, a QuickTime movie or a movie file, that file is divided by four effectively, so we get the number of blocks, and then those blocks are put into the system. And there's a front end that accepts those blocks. That goes and it writes that out to storage device. That storage device, it has a database associated with it, which ma- maintains where these blocks are stored within the various storage devices we have. And we have tens of thousands of these storage devices. And then each storage device manages some hard drives. And those hard drives are ultimately where the block ends up. And so you want to test to the hard drive layer at the storage layer and then at the front end layer. I am definitely not doing this justice. And I would say that we have, I, there is a exceedingly long article we've written on how Magic Pocket works. And it's complicated enough that I would say it's worth looking at the architecture diagram that's online to sort of dive through these layers. But in essence, there's probably three main components that I think about this in terms of there's a front end, there's a middleware layer that arbitrates where the blocks are going to be stored. And then there's ultimately a hard drive that it ends up data at rest at. And then there's some metadata that's associated with where all these things are within the system at any given point in time. And so you want to validate that each of these systems view of the world is correct. And that's sort of what the black box monitoring does
0: tell me how dropbox uses the cloud today you know after that famous migration off of s3 like if people don't know that dropbox was started built entirely off of s3 as the storage layer and over time migrated to its own data center infrastructure i believe in in colos not your own data centers how does dropbox use the cloud today
1: So we actually still have a fairly large Amazon footprint. We do our international block storage on S3. So if you're doing GDPR, for example, that's actually done inside of Frankfurt. We have storage locations there. We have storage locations in Asia that we're leveraging S3 for. One of the design principles when we thought about building a storage system is that We want to have the flexibility of storing blocks in whatever storage system makes sense for us. And so it should be a business decision, not a technical decision around where blocks are stored. And so when we think about this, a lot of our reasons had to do with economies of scale and being good at doing storage as it's a core business competency. But we also want to preserve the flexibility of saying, I want to route blocks to a different location if I need to. And so there's there's a layer inside of Magic Pocket which effectively says okay where should this user's data go does it need to be stored in europe okay we're going to put it in a block storage system there an s3 and a super simplistic view of this world right like this is not technically correct in any way but you can think of it as the ultimate resting place whether it's a hard drive or s3 doesn't really matter to the storage system it's just dealing with a block and has a pointer to the location at which that block is stored so you can drop it in effectively any storage system that we know how to write to
0: got it and we kind of talked through the black box perspective of the read. And I guess a write is somewhat similar. And it sounds like you have maybe become a little less intimately familiar with that layer of the infrastructure. So over time, have you moved into more of a management role, or are there different parts of the infrastructure that you're concerned with? When did you start to raise up in the level of abstraction?
1: So my journey at Dropbox, I joined as a site reliability engineer in 2012. I started managing a small team of engineers, probably 12 months in, maybe nine to 12 months in. From there, started managing and built out an SRE organization, took on some additional teams, storage being one of them at the time. So the last time I was at sort of that layer of the stack, looking at the intimate technical details, probably five, six years ago, from there managed a bunch of the infrastructure teams, went and started doing a super small team of some of our more principal engineers and worked on rewriting RPC systems, worked on with them deploying a new lock service, and then went to develop a productivity in the platform layer for about nine months, rebuilt some systems there, and then came back and started managing all of infrastructure, which is about, infrastructure at Dropbox is everything from supply chain, vendor management, data center network, storage systems, all the release processes for backends, all the reliability engineering teams. I started doing that about probably 18 months ago and started moving into that role. So I've been all over the place in the stack at Dropbox. Storage is one of my responsibilities now, but it's one of N. Infrastructure is roughly probably about 190, 200 people right now.
0: And what kinds of technical issues do you find yourself going deeper on?
1: I probably know enough to be dangerous in any of these areas, which is the uh, which is a blessing and a curse as a manager in a lot of ways. The last set of things, or rather the current set of things that I've been going pretty deep technically on, have been more around reliability in the last 12 months. I spent a bunch of time there, mostly because as we've grown as an organization, the system complexity has increased. So I haven't been diving necessarily into system A, B or C, but more as like, how do we think about reliability as a problem statement for Dropbox? And then how do we build in the right guardrails and how do we build in the right processes so that that it is sustainable as opposed to, I think what a lot of organizations see is a lot of heroics where you have, you know, your super senior engineer that can dive in and fix the problem, but that's not scalable as you grow, right? And so I spent a lot of time on sort of that problem space. And then the rest of it has been spent a lot more around sort of how do we make sure we're getting a set of business outcomes on the efficiency side that we need to dive into. So just understanding sort of what levers we have around efficiencies, what levers we have around, around reliability. That's been primarily the space I've been spending the last 12, 12 months on.
0: And what does increased reliability mean for Dropbox at this point? Like, I feel like Dropbox has been working on reliability for so long that so many of the edge cases are are hammered out. What kinds of edge cases are you working on now? Or is it, is it a different type of reliability that you're discussing? I
1: will use my... I know there's people that talk about reliability, have different opinions of sort of this. Like the internal rubric that I use tends to be durability, availability, performance. Just because if I think of a simplistic view that... If it's not there, meaning durability, then someone's going to care a lot about it. Right. So our journey started there. Availability would be, okay, is the system up and can I get to the data that I'm looking for? Right. You've stored it, but like, can I get to it? And then like, can I get to it from a performant way? Right. And so that could be anything from website performance to client performance to sort of the mobile performance. Right. And so we have and this is a project I was not involved in from a technical perspective, but reliability sort of is adjacent to it. We rolled out a new sync engine. We had a blog post about this as well in the last couple of days, that new sync engine truly changes how we have to think about reliability because we knew all the edge cases of the old one and we knew how to think about and reason about the old sync engine but when we rolled out this new sync engine that changes the systems that interact there's some performance characteristics that are different you're going to learn more about it and it's the right decision technically because it allows us to actually have more developers work on the core product areas by having a simplified interface to sync now the downside of that right when you think about this from a reliability perspective is that Yes, there's you know 12 years of prior art and knowledge that are that are wrapped up in the existing sync engine, and as you replace it, you still have to rebuild some of this. And now the benefit is the new sync engine has a much simpler set of characteristics, so it's easier to reason about, but we still have to go through some portion of this journey around reliability. So they built new front ends for the sync engine to interface with. Okay, so what are their back end performance characteristics that they're going to see? So how do you scale them? Do they scale differently with different properties than the than the previous sync engine's back scaled with? So So when I think about reliability, it's a continuous journey. I like to tell my teams that, you know, one bad month of reliability is nine months of work for you, like down the road. So it's one of these things that if you're not always on top of and you ever have a regression in, you're going to pay the price for this for some period of time in the future.
0: So I read that Sync blog post, and this was near and dear to my heart because I have Dropbox on desktop. And as somebody who does a lot of content about software engineering, I can think about this problem. I know Sync is not easy to design because it's, you know, you've got this client device that's got lots of power. You've got infinite server infrastructure, but you want to be economical about it. And there's a real open question as to what you should be doing on the client, what you should be doing on the server, how often you should be doing each of those things. I mean, for people who don't know, Sync is like if I have this dedicated Dropbox folder on my computer... I drag a file to it, that file gets synced with the cloud. And, you know, that sounds kind of simple, but if you think about it in actuality, well, the client, I guess, has to be monitoring the, the folder all the time, or the, the server has to be polling the client all the time. I mean, Just tell me a little bit about some of the design problems or design questions that you have to approach when designing sync infrastructure.
1: This is a little bit out of my area of expertise. The client side infrastructure on sync is definitely one of the most complicated surface areas we have at Dropbox. Now, a lot of the problems, right, that you're going to run into a sync, and I will raise the altitude of this a little bit from like, just to let's think about the number of Dropbox users in the world is hundreds of millions, right? So that means that you have some order of magnitude of number of devices that you have to support for this. Now, let's play that forward to how many people that are listening upgrade their Windows operating system on a yearly basis, or have the same number of point releases out there. Now, I think, you know, I'm a back-end back-end infrastructure person, so I have the luxury of saying, thou shalt have one operating system in production, thou shalt use one monitoring system, right? Like it's very easy to make these grand decrees as a back-end person. Now, when you think about designing sync, you have to do this for a set of clients in the world, when I say clients, not end users, but just laptops, desktops, mobile devices that are on n number of versions of Windows, n number of versions of Mac OS, n number of versions of Android or Linux or iOS. Now, if you take that problem statement alone, you can say it's very easy to design a protocol that would maybe work for one of these, right? We've all you know, many software engineers have designed backend protocols that they can just say, okay, this is the only protocol we use in the server side. On the desktop side, it becomes very hard because these operating systems each have their own quirk. So every time you want to design a sync, engine, you have to also think about and reason about how the operating system works as well, because it plays a huge amount of impact into how you're notified that a file changed, when a file changed, whether it even thinks about files and you think about iOS and Android. So those are just, even before you enter the sync world of like, let me get a file from point A to point B and design a protocol, you have to recognize that that problem statement means that you have to design a system that can reason about upwards of, I think right now, just trying to think off the top of my head, the magnitude of operating systems is definitely more than 10 and probably approaching probably 25, 30 that we have to think about from a testing perspective. So forget about the protocol, just think about what are you going to do? What, how do you test this, right? Because you deploy a Dropbox client to all these hundreds of millions of devices and it has to work on Windows with a language pack that is for German, a language pack that's for Japanese, a language pack that's for Chinese, right? Each of those has different characteristics, right? The operating systems have their own quirks which allow bugs to come into it, which mean that sometimes like when you click save, maybe it doesn't work exactly the same way as it does. You think you would think it does, right? But a lot of times it doesn't work exactly the same way. So the protocol has to take into account all of these things and all these edge cases. even before we think about designing the protocol, we have to think about what, what's what's the problem space we're thinking of, we're, we're worrying about from a testing perspective. That's sort of like my thoughts around sync at a high level. The problem statement is very hard. It's not just about how do I move file A f- from point A to point B. I know a lot of people say, well, why, did, why is this just not our sync? Well. The reason is because like when you're doing rsync, you have pretty much a POSIX compatible file system on both sides. Like it's the number of variables are just significantly lower than the number of variables you have to support when you're trying to do sync in the wild across like multiple operating systems.
0: But do you know much about the server infrastructure? Like can you use the same backend system to talk to all these different clients?
1: we have designed a protocol you can think of it as a library that's on the server on the client side now and that client side library it has a set standard interface to the back ends i'm not intimately familiar with the internals of the protocol i think the blog post probably goes into much more detail around that that's actually on the client side of our engineering teams they handle the they handle building the client side because you have to know so much about the operating system side just to build this this type of infrastructure um, the back end side is actually significantly simpler in that regard because we have standard server frameworks that we're using everywhere else we can use there. And we just have a protocol layer that's on top of that. So the internals of the protocol documented in the blog post, I would say that from my perspective, I think when you think about sync, it's really this challenge of building this distributed system in the wild where I think a lot of back-end engineers, myself included when I first joined Dropbox, take for granted sort of the ecosystem you get when you think about building inside of backend. You just can say no to so many things and reduce the number of variables that you have. But you can't do that when you actually do this type of software on a desktop. Even iOS and Android is significantly simpler because the upgrade paths are more forced from the vendor. But like, that's not the case on macOS, and it's not the case on, on Windows.
0: Since you've spent significant time in the storage area, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Can you tell me about how a file gets broken up and distributed on Dropbox today?
1: So the client will chunk it for you, and then when we take that, we store that file, we'll take it on a front end, and we will store it into a magic pocket. Zone that zone will then replicate it asynchronously to a second to a second site. That's the super high level of this. There's nothing super fancy about how that's all happening. The complexity is really the scale and the, in keeping it simple in such a way that like you can do this at scale. We then have some heuristics and we have a secondary system called MPY where. For some portion of this data, we can actually move it to a colder set of storage. We can basically trade off a network read for a disk read where we're going to read this over the wire as opposed to read it from a disk. And so we can then get a little bit more efficiency out of the system. But effectively, the principles are all the same. There's nothing there that's different. It's just a matter of like trading off for network speed.
0: Why do you only replicate it once? I would think you'd need to replicate it twice.
1: This is replicated multiple times. I'm boiling this down to like Uh, at the (laughs) very, very basic, basic level, right? Like there's a block and we store it in multiple places. How many times do we store that in multiple places? That becomes a trade-off around how do you want to reconstruct it? Do you want to reconstruct it over the network or do you want to reconstruct it locally within the data center? There's a lot of different ways we can tune the system from that perspective. So I'm just simplifying this down to like the very basic level. Block comes in, we we store it in an online storage device, we replicate it elsewhere. We do keep multiple copies of it.
0: And what's the size of a block?
1: The... System today is will, the client side chunks it to four megabytes, which we found is a pretty reasonable size for us to use.
0: Do you remember how you arrived at that beautiful number?
1: (laughs) So I would actually have to ask Drew or Rosh that question because that was actually picked as the, we've never found a need to tune that. We've actually looked at it in the past, but we, they picked four megabytes as the very first iteration of the client and it has worked for us ever since. All right. We've definitely looked at it when we started doing Magic Pocket and we found that it roughly worked because anything less than four megabytes is the size of. And so most files in the wild, right, are not actually larger than four megabytes. When you think about a Word document, they're not going to be four megabytes. So there's like a, and I don't remember the, the data off the top of my head, but there's a distribution of like file sizes, right? And so four megabyte generally works with the network speeds we see generally works with the type with how we store the blocks on disk in Magic Pocket. There's not a we haven't found a need really to tune that and it's always worthwhile revisiting, but it hasn't been something that's like, it causes any performance or reliability issues for us.
0: Okay. Can you tell me about the observability infrastructure at the storage tier? Like how are you logging across the storage tier and how are you monitoring it?
1: Okay, so I will take a step back a little bit. So the way we monitor the storage tier is the same way we monitor everything else. So we we think about one of the things we really believe on the backend side is that engineering is about constraints, right? So you can, with this set of constraints, you have to be able to produce a business outcome or, or a technology outcome for for the business. And one of the things we know is that we are going to be bound, people is a bounding function, right? You don't have infinite people. So you have to think about how do you want to spend your resources on building out this type of, uh, these types of systems? So one of the things we arrived at is that we really have a principle of like, we like to have one system that serves a single purpose, right? So we don't want to have n number of monitoring systems. So we actually build a single monitoring system that all backend services use, whether it's storage systems, whether it's our middleware layer, whether it's our identity system, they all use the same monitoring system. And that's actually predicated because we have a single RPC system as well. So storage system uses the same RPC system that everyone else uses. And that allows us to get some efficiencies that are probably not abundantly seeable. But if I have a single monitoring system and a single RPC system, every dashboard I create can be the same for every team because every team cares about RPC latency, RPC gets, RPC puts, right? Like all of this becomes a single button click anytime I turn up a new system. So we actually don't build a specific monitoring system for the storage systems. They actually leverage the exact same monitoring system that everyone else uses. All the data is centralized on a monitoring team. Now, things about storage systems that are interesting to monitor, right? You have to monitor lots of hard drives. You have to monitor all the various services that are running there. You wanna know things like disk reads, disk writes. You wanna know the network latency. You wanna know on block reads, on block writes. It's all the very standard set of things that you'd you'd wanna know in any system. Now, what makes a lot of the power that we get is that you can get this derived because we have a centralized monitoring system where they don't have to go and know all the intimate things about the RPC system because the RPC team actually wrote the monitoring code that allows you to get that data. So they have to like, they have to know how storage works, right? They don't have to know how RPCs work. They don't have to know actually how hard drives work because the hardware engineering team will actually go and instrument hard drives and it all ends up in the same place. Every team gets hard drive monitoring the same way storage team would get hard drive monitoring. This all ends up being, so you get this economies of scale where everyone is sharing the same data. Everyone has the same interface. You don't actually have to, and this goes to developer efficiency, you don't have to have a cognitive overhead of learning a new monitoring system when you change teams. You don't have to learn a new build system either. And so what we think about this is like, can we have one system that's can be leveraged across multiple teams? So, you know, those eight people that work on monitoring can actually be leveraged across the storage team, across the traffic team, across the network team, without us having to go repeat this over and over and over again.
0: Do you remember any particular instances in the storage area where it was really hard to debug something?
1: Let's see. Debugging on storage. We were going through one the other day, actually. We were seeing... I can tell you the problem statement. The technical solution is definitely above my my technical intuition because it's, uh, it's going to be on the hardware side. We were seeing effectively a single hard drive lock up the entirety of a chassis. So if a hard drive went offline, the chassis would lock up. And now the interesting thing is these chassis have 100 hard drives in them. So not you don't lose 1/100th of the capacity of the server, you lose 100% of the server because there is a bug in the firmware of the controller card that when the drive would fail in a certain way, the entire chassis would go offline. Now that becomes incredibly hard to debug as you can imagine, right? Because there is no system to go debug. The thing has crashed. So Linux is hard locked up, right? And it's not even necessarily Linux that's locked up. The hardware itself is locked up. So now you're in a world where you have to start to look at, okay, You can do mitigations across this, right? You can say, can I, are there any leading indicators of why these hard drives are locking up? Now that usually requires us to go back to the vendor because there is so much data coming out of these hard drives, right? If you just look at smart, like sort of the smart output or you look at any of the logging data that the the firmware is gonna give you, it's, Greek in a lot of ways, right? Like this is not something that is a manual online that you can go read about. This is going to be, you have to go find the guy that wrote the firmware for this device and like ask for an interpretation of what's happening. So we'll typically work with a vendor to go help us through that process. So then we find out, okay, so that's how you sort of, you you can start to triage this, right? And then we can start to do a prediction of, okay, what's the probability of this hard drive going, of a hard drive going offline based on these leading indicators? Can we do anything like proactively fail the drive in a different way? So that the whole chassis doesn't go down right because it's only when it's failing in a very specific way does the whole thing lock up so can we just take the drive offline can we just send a data center tech to pull the drive an hour before we know it's going to crash And a lot of that goes into like, we just have to look at the data and we have to collect all the smart stats. We have to then process it, right? And it's like a lot of pattern matching. It's a lot of like, okay, we saw this type of, this log line event come out across the last hundred times this failed. And so some set of these are gonna have to fail over time before we collect enough data to understand it. But then on the flip side, once you have some of that, you can be proactive about this and say, okay, I'm going to fail the drives proactively or I'm going to pull the drive proactively, which then cuts your failure rate down from you know, 100% of the chassis to 1 100th of the chassis, again, as the system's like designed to, to work through. So that's an example of like one we've had to debug Really, it comes down to just instrumentation of the hard drives and getting as much data as possible off of it, looking for patterns in the data. A lot of it is manual. I can tell you there's no system that we don't have a system today. And I would assume most people don't have a system to comb through this and like find the, you know, a lot of this is hex codes and things like that that are coming out of these drives and finding those like, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened. And this is probably the reason why it failed. And that we have to partner with the hardware vendors on just because they're the ones with the expertise and they are the ones that have may have seen this in other customers as well where we may not be the first, but they may know that what sort of the leading indicators are because we may, it may take us you know six months to figure those out. So there's a big partnership between us and the vendors on that side.
0: So as Dropbox moved off the cloud, you moved into Colos, and I realize you still have a cloud presence at this point. But one interesting question about the Colos is you have to determine where to put them. Geographically, You have to determine your requirements for geographic placement. And then you have edge infrastructure as well, which I guess you also have CDNs that you're using aside from those colos, I assume, in the edge infrastructure? Yes.
1: We have three different types of way of serving traffic at a high level. We have data centers, and then we have POPs, and then we have some CDNs that we leverage as well. So there's three different layers of this. We have a publications globally, we have data centers domestically, and then we leverage CDNs for some of the content that makes more sense from a CDN perspective. Think about sort of JavaScript and things like that. I think we do client distribution as well through some of the CDNs where the global reach is actually maybe significant, not significantly more than our edge network, but like reaches like last mile a little bit better than our edge network would reach.
0: And tell me a little bit about the geographic placement there. How do you determine where to put these... Colos.
1: So from a data center perspective, when we first started doing Magic Pocket, we looked at having data centers roughly, we wanted to have three copies of the data. So, you know, we needed to have three different geographic locations. We wanted to look at everything from latency is a big part of it. Network connectivity that's available is a big part of it. Power cost is a big part of it. When you're building this out, and here's sort of an interesting tidbit of things that we've thought about were okay, if I'm going to pick a location and in the process of building this out, we're going to be doing it in the winter. Do we want to do it in Chicago? Answer's probably no. From like a business perspective, right? You're going to have to deal with like snow delays. You're going to have to deal with all of that. So it was one of the things we thought about was like, okay, what's, what will it take to actually do this in the time sort of where are we contextually from like in the year as well? You know, that's not like a, it's one of the inputs. It's not the only input. Right. And so those are some of them we actually have a checklist that's probably four or five pages of sort of like what are the attributes we're looking for in a data center? Because it's both geography, like that's one cut. And then there's within that geography, do you have the constraints on, Do the buildings support the types of things you're looking for? So for example, for us, a storage rack Currently, it probably weighs much more than this. I remember we did an all hands maybe five or six years ago. And I think the number we came up was like 2,200 pounds to 2,500 pounds. So it's like a little bit more than a Prius. I think it was the analogy we used is like the weight of a single storage rack. Well, some raised floors don't support that. So that makes a difference, right? So then you have to pick a a provider that's actually going to be able to provide you a raised floor that actually has the right characteristics or doesn't have a raised floor and does overhead, right? So these are the sort of things that go into it. It's like not just geography, right? We can do some cuts around geography and say, okay, we don't want to be in the path of a natural disaster, you know, so let's pick a geo that's outside of the Bay area, ultimately for some blocks, let's pick a geography that's, you know, central to the country. So that gets you sort of in the Midwest, let's pick something on the East coast, right? Like you can cut it that way. That's like a quick first cut. And then there was this, okay, what are the actual characteristics of the facilities that we need to have? Because that drove so much more of sort of the decision-making long-term because from a network perspective that you can find some usually pretty good cities. And then you're sort of, what are you picking from a facility inside of that city? sort of a roundabout answer, but there's, it's a multivariable problem for us.
0: Got it. And can you tell me about networking? So I'd like to learn about networking between data centers as well as networking within a single data center.
1: Okay, between data centers. So we have our, at a high level, we have an edge network. This is roughly our POPs. Uh, and this is, you can think of this as points of presence around the world. This is last mile or not really last mile, but like last mile for us to the user. So like where we're going to do handoffs to other providers and take on transit that allows us to reduce latency because we can do effectively long haul connections that are persistent for us. So we don't have to pay the startup costs over and over again. So that's from a client's perspective. We have that works just like your typical CDN would work in a lot of ways. Then what we have on top of that is our data centers internally to the U S we have some data centers there. Now we've had multiple iterations of internal data center fabric the original fabric was sort of a two post, normal, st- typical sort of startup-y sort of feel where everything's multiple, comes back to the core. We have since evolved into a cloth fabric networking team has deployed that. I think in all of our new facilities that's been out for probably the last 18, 24 months gives us maybe even longer, maybe 36 months has gives us a much higher throughput between servers. So you're effectively able to utilize more of the cross-sectional bandwidth between server to server. Try to stay at that altitude for for this. I don't know how much much (laughs) detail you want to have on the networking side. (laughs) I don't know what the listener base looks like on that side.
0: Fair enough. What about DNS? How do you handle DNS?
1: DNS for us is handled in multiple ways. We have internal DNS, we have external DNS. External DNS, we I know this sort of open-ended question. So I'll say we want to select DNS provider that allows us pretty good redundancy and ability to fail over our sites in a quick manner, right? Like so there has to be some characteristics that we care about that. Internal DNS is actually. We actually use service discovery for almost everything internally, so it's less of a concern. So we're not actually we we have a fairly robust. I mean, you have to have run an internal DNS infrastructure to it has to bootstrap everything. But ultimately, when our services internally are talking to each other, we're switching over to like to a service discovery based architecture there. Any more? Like I'm just trying to pick at what you're looking for from an external DNS. It's a fairly. I would say DNS for us is not anything I'd say is a special secret sauce. It's going to be, we want to pick something that's reliable, something that gives us the ability to have to fail over back and forth between DNS providers as well. We look at saying like, we want to always have two. We want to back up in case, the primary one is down. All of those things play into it. I would say it's not necessarily something that I would say is like a, it's a fairly standard setup in our world.
0: Totally. Yeah. It makes sense. So if I'm an engineer deploying a service within Dropbox What's my workflow? Is there an internal platform? Is there like a platform engineering setup? Am I just using AWS? What's going on there?
1: This I can probably, I'll go a little bit more technical detail on this. A long, long time ago, we made the decision that we did not want an engineer at Dropbox to know whether they were deploying on top of our cloud or any other public cloud. And the reason for that was that from my perspective, engineers are here at the company to produce product or here to produce business value, right, for an end user. And so we want to abstract this like workflow notion of like, I need to understand whether I'm on a Dropbox computer versus an AWS computer versus a GCP computer. It doesn't like at the end of the day, they're deploying some code. They want to see a user use it, right? Like that's their goal. So we made this decision not to have any type of infrastructure or any type of abstraction that required you to reason about this in any sort of meaningful way. And so if I started at the base level, machine management, machine management has a very simple workflow. You can be installed. You, you can go through some workflow, this life cycle of am I installed in the data center? Am I in repair? Have I been repaired? Am I like being reimaged? Like there's some like there's like a stateful stateful system that you can tra- traverse as a system. And then on top of that, we said, OK, we have to build some cluster management. Dropbox has been around long enough that we'd started on our cluster management software well before Kubernetes was like mature. I think Mesos had some traction, but not a lot. We actually just said, look, our bounding constraint actually was gonna be memory and network. It's not about CPU. So bin packing didn't get us a lot of value. So we built some pretty simple abstractions and you'll find a theme in Dropbox engineering around simplicity. We said, look, Basically, you utilize 100% of the memory, 100% of the network before you utilize 100% of the CPU. So that's not something we can bin pack anyway. So, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to build a system that lets us manage machines very easily for our end user. And we will build a way that when you deploy on this, you can just move a service from a machine A to machine B, and you'll never have to know about it, assuming you use our core libraries. And so that was sort of like the intent. Now, the way this all gets operationalized, and I mentioned before that we think about only having one of versus like n of types of systems. So we try to limit the number of programming languages we have. We, in production, really, you have two and a half, three, maybe four, if you count Java. We have Go, Python, a little bit of Rust, and a little bit of Java. And so we make very big investments in our core libraries inside of Python and inside of Go. And then we provide deployment systems and platforms that when you build something, you get an artifact. That artifact is the same is generated by a single build system for all of Dropbox. That build system generates the artifact. The artifact goes into into a deployment pipeline. The deployment pipeline goes out to one of these machines, which is this machine lifecycle, which is managed by this cluster management software. And so from an end user perspective, you have this one dashboard, which says, okay, I input my artifact hash, and then I push deploy, and you can wire it up to have various types of canaries, various types of call them states. So you know, you, maybe you want a staging environment, then you want a canary environment, then you want a partial push to production, a full push to production. But it's all the same. So I can go from team A to team B to team C, and my workflow is exactly the same for deployment.
0: That's a that's a great summary. And can you tell me more about? Internal tools at Dropbox, like with that emphasis on simplicity, what are the situations where you, whatever you could have taken off the shelf, wasn't sufficient, and you needed to build something internally?
1: So we actually try to take a lot of things off the shelf. Good example of this, probably the biggest case that comes to my mind. The build system we use is called Basil. Basil is a open source system that Google uses effectively a fork of their internal system. And so we actually use Bazel for our build system for all server-side artifacts. Now, Bazel out of the box works. It lacks a lot of things you would need at scale. So an g- example of this is we have to wire up caching for it and intermediate build steps for it. So what this means is, is that if I'm going to push build, I Bazel can either build itself or it can look into a remote cache to see if this artifact or if this graph has been built before effectively. And so what we've done is we actually have had to build all the caching infrastructure for that. We had to build all the package management backend infrastructure for that. So when I hit build at Dropbox, the build file will specify what are all the intermediate targets, et cetera, et cetera. And those intermediate targets will get cached out in in a production system for caching build artifacts. Now the next person, let's say you go build something. What will happen is, is that we'll see if any of those intermediate things have changed. If nothing has changed, we'll just pull the cache version so we actually don't have to do a compilation of that again. So that allows a developer to have a much faster build time on server-side artifacts. Now, the real sort of power behind this is that when that's wired up to the builds to the CI systems, every time someone submits a code, a code change, the CI system does the full integration, does the build, right? It caches the artifacts. So now you have a pot cache that's Continuously being populated by the by the CI system so that the next person that wants to go do a build doesn't necessarily have to do a full build anymore. They can pull an incremental out of the cache system that CI populated. So now, you know, let's say you're building world and you only change one file and you only really have to change do the build for that one for the thing that you impacted and everything else is just pulled off the network. So that gives a much, much faster development cycle time when you may have some large artifacts that have to be built. So that's an example of where we took something off the shelf. We have to add, you know, it's very clear in the documentation yet supports caching. None of this exists. So build some caching infrastructure behind it. For me, that's the like one prime example that comes to my mind. That's like super simple to like explain at a a pretty easy level.
0: Okay. So At this point, you're VP of infrastructure, which means that you're at the intersection of management and engineering. What's the hardest lesson that you've had to learn about management?
1: I would say, and this is probably the same answer a lot of managers would give, giving up control is a hard lesson to learn and making sure that you can effectively give the right level of agency and autonomy to the organization at large, especially given that I started in infrastructure when there was, I think, 12, 15 people. And, you know, now it's like 200 plus people, around 200 people. Like, that's like, like I have a lot of historical state, right? And so it's like very hard for me sometimes to say, okay, yeah, I, I know how that used to work. Or I know, how, like, I have some implicit assumptions about what's happening here. That, you know, over time, either they're wrong, or better people have now taken the reins and, like, understand it more completely, or... You know, the system just doesn't exist anymore. And my assumption was incorrect to start with. So that for me is like a, was always, you know, just giving up that control and like letting the team go with it, but at the same time, putting in the right guardrails to make sure like the right
0: outcomes are occurring. How has the company changed operationally since covid
1: the biggest operational changes are very, very small from the engineering perspective. We didn't do anything crazy on limiting releases or anything sort of like that for that front. We left, you know, what we tried to do is say like, you know, we want to have as much business as usual on the engineering side. Now, operationally, a big part of my role also is supply chain. That world has changed drastically. The director of supply chain pinged me, I think, January 25th. And he goes, uh, just to let you know, 2020 is not going to be a normal year. This is going to be crazy. And this is January 25th, mind you. And I was like, okay, Ali, like, what's going on? And he's like, well, I'm pretty sure Wuhan is gonna shut down and like just to let you know, like, there's second-tier suppliers that we use that come out of some of the facilities in Asia, and like we're already starting to see delays. We're going to have to go into full sort of like you know, wartime mode to like keep track of all of this. And a big part of like what they do is they interface with a lot of our ODMs, OEMs, and they make sure it's sort of like all of our, Rack deliveries, all the server builds, all the next generation equipment. It's like, it's all a pipeline of materials, right? And so they had to go effectively into a wartime mode in war room mode of, okay, we're normally sourcing, you know, first tier suppliers, right? We're dealing with, you know, down to sort of commodities. Like I have a commodities management team that's managing sort of DRAM, SSDs, hard drives. They're thinking of, and chips, CPUs, right? They're handling that level of commodities. Now, this new world that we're living in post COVID, that's not where they have to stop. They actually have to think about, okay, power supply or sheet metal or like rails that are going to go into a rack that they normally take for granted. That's going to come from the supplier, right? They actually have to look and make sure that all of that supply pipeline is actually there. So the last two, three months for me has actually been spending a lot of time in that world. And I am like super thankful to our partners like that are out in the world that actually helped make all this happen because it is definitely supply chain hit global supply chain is like not what it was six, 12 months ago. And that's actually been a big focus of mine for, during COVID is just making sure we have contingency plans on the software side if there are capacity shortages on hardware availability. And these are things, right, that even the cloud providers will see, right? This is not, this is like macroeconomics. This is not going to be sort of, you know, just because you're a certain size X, you will be impacted by this. This is that literally everybody is impacted by this. And so we've been spending a lot of time, you know, making sure that that's available. And a big part of it is like the upfront work you have to do with the relationships with the suppliers and spending the time with them to make sure they understand the business that you that you have. That's the post COVID world and infrastructure has been a big portion on the supply chain side.
0: That's amazing. And do you feel like it's feasible for everybody to overcome the, the supply chain constraints? Or does it feel like the noose is getting tighter? I
1: feel very good about like where we are today. There's nothing in the Dropbox world ecosystem that I worry about on the supply chain side right now for us. We have line of sight for everything probably the next 12 to 18 months, feels pretty good. You know, I say this today talking to you, given COVID and the realities of the world and how it's changing, Will that answer change tomorrow? Maybe. What we tend to do is look at this week over week and say, okay, what's the week over week supply look like? What's the commodity markets look like? The teams are managing this, you know, basically 24 by seven. You when you think about, you know, we're on the West Coast, but you're having to manage the supply base in Asia. So they're coming online right when everyone here is going to bed. So there's like, it's a continuous dialogue and we just have to stay on top of it. There's literally no other way to do this that I know of on the supply chain side.
0: Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you.
1: Thank you. It was great to be here.